Hi, this is Paul Gladder with Religion Unplugged podcast. Um, we cover religion and public life around the world. And today on our podcast, we're talking about religion in America related to a big story, which is the election. So we decided to have a roundtable. We've assembled a group of people from around the country to talk about this with a special guest. So let me just introduce who we have today. We have uh, Hamil Harris, based in Washington, D.C., Maryland area. He's written about uh, many topics, including religion for the Washington Post, as well as Religion Unplugged, uh, teaches at University of Maryland, classes in journalism. We have Megan Clark, who's my colleague at Religion Unplugged, award-winning online magazine. She's our managing editor. She's based in New York City area. We have Bob Carl. Dr. Bob Carl is a professor of religion at the King's College in Manhattan, where I work. He's my colleague there. He uh, also follows politics and is a specialist on many topics, including Islam. We have Melissa Harrison, who works with us at the Media Project and is also an assistant professor at Texas Christian University in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. We have here Jillian Cheney, a Pointer Coke Fellow with Religion Unplugged, writing about culture as well as uh, American Christianity. And our special guest today is uh, Dr. Ryan Burge, who is a professor, assistant professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. And a lot of us know him as a data journalist who uh, is very fast and good at, at looking at data about religion, politics, and other topics and writing about those, crunching the data, making sense of the data. Um, he's also, by the way, a pastor in the American Baptist Church denomination. So that also gives him a window into the world of religion. So Ryan and crew, we're glad to have you here today. Maybe Ryan, you could kick it off. Uh, today is Friday. Our election we had uh, earlier in the week is still, you know, being deliberated. But what? How do things look to you right now? Um, I think there were really there were really two scenarios that could have happened on uh, this week, and one was sort of a big blowout for Biden and a blue wave for the Democrats, taking the Senate, picking up more houses or more seats in the House, winning by you know 400 electoral college votes is what some models predicted. Um, that clearly didn't happen. I think we, we got the more modest uh, win for Biden. It, it looks very much like that he's won the presidency now after uh, Pennsylvania has switched to uh, Biden, more Biden votes than Trump votes. But I think um, it, it was a small blue wave. I think if Biden would have lost, it would have been a, a blue catastrophe, to be honest with you. I mean, they it very much looks like that they won't take back the Senate. There's two runoff elections in Georgia. They're going to happen on January 5th, but they'd have to win both of those in Georgia to get to 50-50, which seems pretty unlikely. They actually lost seats in the House. Um, not a single Republican House incumbent lost re-election in 2020, which is, you know, very telling, I think, about what happened. And then there are states that, you know, were reaches for Trump, I'm sorry, reaches for Biden that Trump held, like Texas, like Florida. Um, like Ohio, and it looks like North Carolina is going to stay red too. So a lot of the, the, the states that, that would have been a big blowout just did not end up that way. And actually, I mean, look, think about the Lindsey Graham race, for instance, in South Carolina. They bought, The Democrats pumped $100 million into that race, and Graham won by double digits. So I think the reality is the, the Democrats kind of win, but not really. You can't feel too great about it if you're a Democrat right now. If they win both runoffs in Georgia, it's a totally different story. Um, but that, I think, is a long shot. I think the reality is they're going to keep the Republicans are going to keep the Senate. We're going to have a blue house, a less blue house. And then Biden's going to be in the White House, which overall, 
like I said, minor win for the Democrats, not a huge blowout that a lot of people thought it was going to be. Okay, great. That's a good overview. And you set the table with a lot of goods on the buffet here for our colleagues to, to, to ask questions about. I'm going to ask one more and then turn it over to them. Um, what do we know so far about the religion vote? So it's early. Um, the, the data we're working off is exit poll data, which um, I could go on a long diatribe about why exit polls are problematic for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, we're really not going to know for sure about the religion vote for months until these big surveys come out that I analyze. And they usually come out in March uh, following the election. But the best exit polling we have is not actually an exit poll. It's from the Associated Press and it's called VoteCast. And actually, it was just a straight up traditional poll where they just called 140,000 people and asked them questions about their vote intention right before the election. A couple of things that jump out to me is that um, your white evangelicals are exactly in that pocket of support that we always kind of thought they were going to be, which is around 66, 67, I'm sorry, 76, 77, 78, which is exactly where they were in 2016, right at 78%. 2012, they were at 77, you know, 2008, they were at 76. So we're all in the same kind of band for white evangelicals. I don't think there's a whole lot of story there to tell, except um, Trump did nothing to drive any more of them away, which might be a story in and of itself, but uh, you know, it's just steady as she goes. For me, the big story of uh, religion in 2020 is the Catholic vote, especially the white Catholic vote. Um, white Catholics were 59-41 for Trump in 2016 which was up from 55-45 in 2012, which is also 55-45 in 2008. So Trump did better with white Catholics, but every piece of data I see now seems like he lost six to eight points of that. So much closer to 52-48 or even 50-50 I'm seeing in some polls right now. So the reality is if he loses seven or 8% of white Catholics, they're concentrated in the states that we're talking about right now. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, those are Rust Belt states with a lot of legacy Catholics there, people who grew up, you know, second, third, fourth generation, um, white, blue collar, working class Catholics. And if you peel off six or eight percent of that group, that probably translates to two or three percent of the vote overall. And if you look at the margins in those states, that's enough to switch it from a red state in 2016 to a blue state in 2020. So I think the white Catholic vote is a big, big reason why um, Biden is going to win the Rust Belt. And I also think the, the, the minority vote, especially in the state of Georgia, has really come through here uh, and with the mail-ins being counted more and more. We're seeing a lot of black Protestants really come through and vote in strong, strong numbers for Joe Biden. It looks like Biden's going to win the state of Georgia for the first time in 20, uh, 28 years, since 1992. So I think that's also sort of a, a tailing story, too. So I think it's white Catholics. I think it's black Protestants. But I also think Hispanic evangelicals and Catholics are going to be a lingering story going forward now. There are tons of really interesting county-level things that happen. For instance, Miami-Dade. Uh, Hillary Clinton won Miami-Dade County in Florida by almost 30 points four years ago, and Biden won it by less than 10 um, this time. Another county is Doral County in Florida. Um, Hillary Clinton won it by 40 Biden lost it by five this time. And then there's a little county in Texas called Star County. It's on the Rio Grande Valley. Only 20,000 people voted, primarily Hispanic County. Um, Hillary Clinton won it by 50 four years ago, and Biden won it by five um, on Tuesday. So those are, to me, are canaries in the coal mine. The Hispanic Catholic and the Hispanic evangelical vote seems to be shifting pretty dramatically in the last four years. And I really don't have a good reason why right now. That's going to be like a good postmortem autopsy thing over the next couple of years is figuring out what the Democrats did to lose such large shares of Hispanics. Great context. Thank you so much. Let's, what, what do uh, colleagues, what do you have? Ryan, I just had a question. 
how could pollsters get this so wrong? I mean, uh, Mitch McConnell won by 23%. That was supposed to be a dead heat. Um, Okay, so here's here's how I think of it. Uh, I'm a detective and there was a bank robbery overnight and they call me in at 4 a.m. and the sun's still coming up and I'm bleary-eyed, need caffeine and I can't see the murder scene yet or the crime scene, right? Like I'm still trying to figure out like what happened. I will say this, as the... As the mail-in ballots are being counted more and more, the polls are looking less bad every day now because that margin is shrinking. So I will say like on election night, it looked like we were worse off than we were in 2016. I think in some ways we're better, but in some ways we're just as bad as we were four years ago. I think those state level Senate races are a mess though. I'm like Susan Collins never led a single poll in Maine and won the state in a walk. Um, you know, we talk about Lindsey Graham won by 10 points. They thought it was going to be a toss up. There's lots of state level stuff. State level polling is highly problematic. And I don't want to go too far like down the rabbit hole of polling. But when your response rate for your phone calls dips around one or two percent, you're getting such a weird sample of who actually answers the phone. And for whatever reason, pollsters think that phone phone interviews are better than doing it other ways. I'd love to see in the future if polling agencies start really thinking about using things like DMing on Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat to really reach out to new population groups and figure out the methodology of that. Because it's clear that what we're doing right now is not working. I would say if I was gonna run a poll for 2022, I would weight the heck out of Republican respondents though, overweight them for what they've been weighted in previous polls. Because it's clear they're underrepresented in our accounts and that's causing serious problems. This is hard though. I mean, I you could not pay me to go work for 538 right now and do the prediction for 2022. I, I would just not do that because the problem is garbage in is garbage out. Like your prediction model is only good as the data that feeds into it. And it's the data feeding into it that's the problem. Nate Silver is not the problem. It's the data that he gets is the problem. So it's all these pollsters across America. So you're really on the brunt end of all the bad news when really you didn't cause it. Your model could be perfect, but if your data is bad, your output's bad. So we're going to have a reckoning. AAPOR is going to have a really hard time the next couple of years. American Association of Public Opinion Researchers, they're going to have a really hard time the next couple of years, like figuring out what in the world happened. And they're going to have, here's the problem. They have to wait four years to see if their tweaks actually fixed anything. Um, so, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting couple of years. I'll say that. It's always at the Washington Post, they always say it's always about relationships. And I talked to the, the head of faith outreach for the DNC is in our religion unplugged story. And they told me, this is We've been telling our people, mail in, mail in, mail in. Don't make a big noise. Because traditionally, you always have souls to the polls, Jesse Jackson, all that stuff. That wasn't the party. And they said they did not want to make the Trump people too upset and get riled up. So it's interesting. I'm wondering now when President Trump told his people, go to the polls on election day, go to the polls. And they voted. But then the Democrats were saying, no, you want to mail, you want to mail. And now we're seeing that vote, as you said, about now coming out in the big cities. And again, the mega churches and stuff, they have gone under, basically because of Zoom, the churches are still just as big, but they're not in person, but they're on Zoom. So th- those messages, there was messaging going on. And I'm wondering, did that have one of the big impacts where people kind of missed this thing in terms of who voted and how they voted? I think you make up a great point, though, and that's like how how do you do how do you do real polling when you have this mail in component to it that we've never had before at this level? Because we know that mail in voting drives up turnout. I mean, the reality is 
my sister-in-law lives in a little county in central Illinois, like 92% of ballots mailed out there were returned in a little rural county in Illinois. Like that, that drives turnout, especially for people groups who have a hard time getting to the polls. So when we talk about exit polling and things like that, we have to be really careful because exit polling really means they talk to people as they exited the polls. So if you only grab those people out, you're only getting this time less than half of the people that voted voted in person this time. So you're getting a really weird sample of people that does not represent the entire population group. And I really think, I hope, my prayer is that this tells the American public that mail-in balloting actually is good and it works and Republicans should use it too, because it really killed them this time. I think Trump poisoning the well on mail-in voting is the reason that he lost right now. If he would have got some of those Republicans to mail in their ballots, that he, there, you wouldn't have seen these margins where Biden won 80% of the mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. It would have been 60%. And if that happened, you know, he wouldn't, Biden wouldn't be the president in 2021, right? So I think the reality is that also makes, by the way, all this discussion about exit polling and what we're looking at right now is, is really, really difficult because we have to figure out how to set up, we have likely voter models, which means you're going to go to the polls, but likely voter looks wholly different if you're going to fill out an envelope, stuff it in and put it in the mail. I mean, that lowers the threshold for everybody and our likely voter gets a lot bigger now. And we just don't know how to model that yet at the nationwide level because only five states did universal mail-ins until this year. So there's so much uncertainty this time, especially with COVID, plus with you know Trump and everything else. I think, again, I think we're going to be doing postmortems for a long, long time on this election. I think this might be a sort of a, a hinge on how we do public opinion research of how this one all came out. Well, well, we can, you know, see some frustrations and different elements. Isn't there some positives here too, Ryan, and especially around voter turnout this year? It was a record year, as I understand it. That's, I mean, more people voted for Joe Biden for president than any president, presidential candidate in the history of our country. And that is a, I mean, objectively a good thing. Like we want high turnout because we know the literature backs up that makes people form more efficacious. They feel like government responds to their needs and they're more likely to get involved if they turn out to vote. So we, this is not a partisan thing. We should make voting easier in this country. I'm in favor of universal mail-in voting for every state in the country. I think the federal election holiday, it should be a national holiday for every state. It's a state. In Illinois, we have it now. It just happened this, this time for the first time ever. We need to do everything we can to drive out turnout. And I think that churches need to do a better job of really doing the nuts and boltsy things of turnout, right? Religious organizations have these, these built-in mechanisms to get people out to the polls and doing things like helping them fill out their mail-in ballot, helping them register to vote. All these are good things that churches can do and synagogues and mosques can do all over the country that I think a lot of churches unfortunately feel like, oh, that's being political. It's not being political. It's being a good citizen. And those two things are completely different. You know, we don't care who you vote for. We just want to help you vote. Like that's the mentality that religious organizations need to have because their communities are going to be better for it, and America is going to be better for it. The more turnout we have, low turnout elections are bad elections, and they're a failure of our system. And we need to stop thinking. I mean, suppressing the vote is bad for democracy, period. I mean, there's tons of literature that says that. That's not me being partisan or whatever. We need to encourage people to vote and make it easier in this country to vote. And unfortunately, we've made it harder over the last couple of years. And, you know, despite all that, Biden got a huge turnout. So, you know, it does show you that people find obstacles and they overcome them with resilience. I think that's what we saw in 2020 a lot for this, for the Biden vote, especially. 
you know, some people say, well, we've grown our population as a country, but I think from a percentage standpoint too, the percentage of Americans voting was also higher, right? That's exactly right. I mean, this is a very high turnout election. I think I've seen data that this might be the highest turnout election in at least 75 or 100 years. Um, so this is a good one. I mean, there's a lot to be very happy about with this election in terms of how many people came out to vote. And I will say this, every, I will pat our, our disp on the back. We told everybody, Trump's going to be leading in these states on Tuesday night. Don't panic, okay? There's going to be a lot of mail-in ballots, and they're going to be predominantly Democrat ballots, and that's exactly what they were. And let's be completely honest. I like to show both sides. I like to say both parties do things wrong. The Republican Party in Pennsylvania was asked to allow mail-in ballots to be counted before Election Day, and they refused to allow that to happen. And so what happened was there were 2.5 million ballots stacked in a warehouse that sat there for days that could have been counted weeks before the election and were not. So now they had to count all of them beginning on 7 a.m. on Tuesday. So that's what takes so long to get the results. If we want to blame anybody, we should blame people who want to obstruct the process and try to cast doubt on mail-in balloting when it works well, it's efficient, and there's no evidence of widespread fraud. We need to change the rules so people understand it's not the people in the election office that messed up. It's the laws that surround them that did not allow them to do their job well. And that's a bigger story, I think. I know you've written about this a little bit, but can you tell us about this myth that white evangelicals are single issue voters against abortion and gay marriage? And where did that line of thinking come from and yeah. what's important to them? Oh, to Megan, you teed me up here. I love it. Um, this is like my, this is my hobby horse now. Um, okay. So for a long time, the conception is that white evangelicals are really values voters. They're, they're really not super Republicans, but they're closer to the Republicans because of abortion. And that really traces lineage back to the early 1990s when anti-abortion activism in America hit this all time high. There's something called the summer of mercy, where there was all these anti-abortion protests all over the country, led largely by conservative Catholics, but also by white evangelicals. The Catholic church has had a pro-life ethic forever. The white evangelicals did not. They really co-opted it from the Catholic doctrine. Okay. So they assumed that doctrine and then they really took it to the next level and made it part of their, who they are. So over the last 20 years, Roe has become a totem, I think, for all these values voters ideas. I think it really has moved to the fore, by the way, because now gay marriage is the law of the land and that happened and everyone kind of went, okay, fine, let's stop fighting. So abortion became sort of like the singular issue that white evangelicals cared about, or at least that's what the media said they cared about. But if you look at the data, you cut it any way you want, what you see is that white evangelicals are Republicans. And they're not just Republicans because of abortion, they're Republicans because they don't like regulations, they don't like low taxes, they wanna spend a lot of money on the military. Um, they are, you know, more traditional in their perception of family values and things like that. They are, they care about deficits, although they didn't care about deficits the last four years. They care about deficits usually, right? So they are bread and butter Republicans. They're literally the middle of the Republican Party. Like they're not, okay, we'll vote for you on this because we just want, we don't want to make sure Roe goes away. No, no, no. They like the position on Roe, but they like the position on taxes, on, on transgender in the military, on minimum wage, 
I mean, on family separation policy, by the way, half of white evangelicals supported family separation, which is the highest of any religious group in America today. They are not holding their nose and voting for Trump. They're voting for Trump because they're Republicans and he's a Republican. So this whole this whole aspect of like, oh, we don't like you on this, but because of Roe and babies, we're going to vote. Here's I think what perpetuates this is a really simple thing, which is that people know if you're at a party and someone asks, what do you, who do you vote for? And you say, I vote for Republicans. They say, well, why? You say, because I think abortion is murder. Everyone kind of goes, okay, I don't agree with you necessarily, but at least I understand the theological position you're taking, and I'm not going to fight you on that. Imagine, though, if you said, who are you voting for? They said Trump. You said, why? They go, immigration, family separation, right? They'd be like, what now? You, you, you want people to separate, be separated at the border? Because that creates a whole conversation, right, about like ethics and life and morality. And you know what? That's going to make people think you're a racist, to be honest with you. So what they do is they pick the easy answer, which is abortion, which stops the conversation. When in reality, I think that's become a shield for all the other stuff that's underneath that that they don't want to talk about. Um, this kind of low-key xenophobia, racism, uh, misogyny that goes on on that side. And so I think it's I think in, what I think is really interesting is now that the, the Supreme Court is clearly 6-3 conservative, what happens if they actually get what they want? I'm not entirely convinced that Repo white evangelical Republicans want abortion to be illegal in this country because they don't fully understand what it means for this country. Um, what happens when the dog catches the car? And it looks like the dog's going to catch the car in the next couple of years. And I think the backlash against that is going to be tremendous amongst everybody else in America, because 70% of Americans don't want abortion to be illegal in this country, and it's going to be illegal in large swaths of this country if they dismantle Roe. So I think it's going to put white evangelicals in a really tough spot, because then a lot of them are going to say, yeah, I don't really know. Like, ooh, we, we went a little too far on that. So reality is white evangelicals are Republicans on every single issue. They've actually differ very little. Things like legalizing marijuana, you see a little bit of daylight, or things like gambling. But beyond that, they're Republicans through and through. I did a story, um, Brother Ryan, about black evangelicals. Mm -hmm. It's interesting how nobody's got this, but a lot of the black evangelicals are upset with the white evangelicals, not because of race, but because they feel they should be more compassionate and have this kinder and gentler spirit. And it came out because one thing about it, nobody can figure out Amy Coney Barrett because when she stood up there with those kids, the, the Haitian kids, the daughter stuff, people say, hey, you know what? She may not be what they think she is. And so you have this kind of undercurrent and there are very serious committed black evangelicals. If you look at Miami, you look at the whole Kanye West uh, ice cube thing, you do have a lot of black males who say, you know what? We've been left out by the Democratic Party and we want in. And so had somebody like a Michael Steele who used to be in the chair of the RNC and he worked with everybody. We everybody like Mike. If they ever open up their mouth and just stop being fearful of people of color, Trump could have won this, you know. But again, it just seems that people got old mindsets, and and because churches are changing. So I think there's actually some some data I see now that says that young black devout people, so people who go to church a lot are actually um, shedding the Democratic label pretty significantly over the last 20 years or so. I do think there's this backlash. I do think that younger Black people who are devout in, in religiously, in terms of they go to church a lot, they have a conservative view of the Bible, are actually moving away from the Democratic Party and moving towards the Republican Party 
Because I think they feel that, though, that the Democratic Party is a party becoming more and more a party of secular people, which is true, by the way. So half of white liberals today have no religious affiliation. I think that's an odd marriage on the left, right? So you've got black Protestants who go to church a lot, you know, believe in a literal Bible, are very conservative theologically. But then you've got your, you know, your hardcore white liberal atheist agnostics, nothing in particular, who want nothing to do with church. I think the Democratic Party's always had a problem of trying to hold these coalitions together and make sense of them. I think if it listen, I think it's easier to run as a Republican today than a Democrat. Um, because you got to hit the same note over and over again, which is white Christianity is good. Let's protect it. Right. Well, the Democrats have to talk about, you know, Muslims. They have to talk about atheists. They got to talk about black Protestants, Hispanic evangelicals, Hispanic Catholics. That's a lot of needles to thread. Um, but here's the reality for the Republicans. And I think we're seeing this right now. The share of America that's white and Christian now is right at 51 percent. And the next five years, it's going to be 45 percent. Seventy five percent of Republicans are white Christians. Only 38 percent of Democrats are white Christians. And guess what? The share the Democrats are getting is a get growing as a share of demography every year. And the share the Republicans are getting is getting smaller every year. So the Republican Party needs to figure out a way to pivot. And it might be doing it with Hispanics and African-Americans like we just talked about. But the Democrats need to figure out how to how to get a bigger piece of what they have or not lose Hispanics. I think that's really the big thing I would be worried about if I was the Democratic Party. Boy, they need to have a reckoning because that it, it's not good going forward for them. It looks like Biden will be elected. And he was, in some eyes, more of the centrist candidate of the Democrats this year, while there was other progressives. Um, when it comes to governing, I mean, also one other factor here is those of us on the East Coast, New York area, the media that we tend to see here seem to suggest that, you know, the minority vote, people of color in America are monolithic. I'm you know, curious to hear both Ryan and Hamill talk about how, did the, how does Biden govern, if he is indeed elected, how could they possibly integrate some of the different viewpoints that you just kind of segmented on your last answer, Ryan? Yeah, I, I think that's the hardest thing going forward is how do you, how do you keep these disparate pieces together? Like, I'm almost thinking like, if you're on social media, like the cancel culture of the left can be just deafening sometimes. And you're trying to like meld the cancel culture with the left with like <laughs> African-American women who go to church every Sunday wearing the hats. Like, how do you, like, how do you hold those two groups together? The woke left and, and black church ladies, like, what does that look like going forward? I think that's, that's a heavy lift, but think about this other lift that the, the, the Republicans have to make. The Republicans have to keep hitting Christian nationalism over and over again, you know, make America great, white Christian, yada, 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 but figure out ways to peel off people like Hispanic evangelicals, Catholic, we talked about, but also the growing nuns in America now that are close to 30% of the population. How do you still hit the Christian nationalism note on this side, but then talk about like, oh, but we care about people without religious affiliation too, when all you've been talking about for the last 20 years is 10 commandments, right, in abortion and gay marriage. There's... The problem with America is we only have two parties and the parties have to be big, big tents, right? They have to try to be everything to everyone. And, and really that's where we're seeing this fraying happen is like, so here's what we think happens. And there's actually literature in political science that talks about this. So every party tries to do this flanking move where it tries to grab more people on one side uh, that, they're, that they're missing. But when you move to that one side, you're exposing your flank on the other side. Right. And then what happens is the other party then takes over the flank that you exposed. And then over time, what happens is the party sort of rotate in policy space. And by the way, that's why Lincoln was not a Republican. Like if you the parties have rotated in policy space since then. 
the problem is we're, I think we're seeing both parties try to grab new flanks, but they also are, are, I think the Democrats are trying to grab new flanks, but they're losing, like we talked about, some of the Hispanic vote, some of the African-American vote, and the Republican Party is kind of subsuming that. But then I think the Republican Party is losing a lot of these maybe libertarian nuns that the Democrats are taking on because of issues like identity politics and religious liberty, right? I think, so I'm going to be fascinated. Uh, my biggest question going forward for the Republican Party is, who do you nominate in 2024? I think that will tell you a lot about what this Republican Party is. Is it MAGA Trump? Like, is that who they are now? Like, are they Trumpers through and through? Do they want to double down on the Trump train? And maybe not, they could nominate Trump again, by the way, because he only served one term, potentially. Um, it could be Donald Trump Jr. It could be Ivanka. It could be someone who's in the Trump orbit. Or do you pivot, right? And do you intentionally come out and nominate someone who's not in that strain of Republican ideology, right? So more like a guy like a John Kasich, right? Not a Mitt Romney, but a Mitt Romney type, someone like that on the national stage. I really think that's the most important question. Here's why the Democrats won in 2020, because James Clyburn came out in South Carolina and said, Biden's our guy. That's why they won, because Biden was the best candidate for this election season. I'm convinced of that now, especially after the election, because he won those white Catholics in those places that he needed to. He won just enough in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania to switch those three states to blue and win the election. I don't know if Elizabeth Warren gets you that. I, I'm convinced that Bernie Sanders does not get you that. So he was the ideal candidate for them today, but he's going to be 82 years old in four years. So who do they go to next, right? Do you want to go to the divert? You want to stay with the old white guy piece? because there's not many of them left in the Democratic Party. But if you pick an identity politician, then you're going to make a group of religious people happy and a group of religious people mad and racial people happy, and racial people mad. How does the Democratic Party move forward being more diverse? And then how does the Republican Party figure out if they're MAGA Trump or if they're sort of old school Republicans? I think the MAGA Trump thing has been successful, by the way. I think objectively they've won a lot in the last couple of years. But do, is it worth it? Is it worth it long-term to the party to be that if you continue to win elections, but then lose sort of your soul at the same time? You know, what's interesting, I love this discussion. One thing we want to put at the top is that one thing President Trump did is ignite the blue collar vote. He brought the blue collar whites back in and they felt a sense of empowerment. That's why you see people fighting because they felt that he was their guy. Now for the Democrats right now, you're talking about Big Tent. It's going to be a fight in the Big Tent right now. Already, I've been listening to calls. Everybody's trying to figure out when they, people really believe that think that Trump was going to win. And then when it came down, they still couldn't believe it. All of a sudden, they said, oh my goodness, we're back. And so now, well, who's back? Is it the AOC back? Or is it the Clyburn back? Or is what back? So all these divergent groups are going to go in and beat each other up again. And they're going to fight over who's going to be in charge. Now, you asked about the future, future Republican Party. Any interesting all roads lead back to South Carolina. You think about how Lindsey Graham dodged the bullet. You know, Harrison, you know, ran hard, you know, all this money, even though it was outside money. Nikki Haley, still there. You got Case Ohio. You got these moderate kind of Republicans, you know, if you want to call them, that are very attractive to Democrats and Republicans. So the question becomes does Jared Kushner, Donald Trump Jr., what, what happened? Because their key was that he was absolutely loyal to that base, that's the smallest component, but the loudest. So does that work or do they go back to try to shift a little bit, you know? I think that, you know, I was talking to someone yesterday about evangelicals, like how do they feel now? They feel like, oh, I'll be back to the wrong guy. I, my, my white evangelical friends feel completely vindicated because they got exactly what they wanted. 
I mean, it, Donald Trump, for good or for ill, it was a transactional politician, right? So I think at the end of the day, evangelicals go, yeah, I mean, we might have got dinged up a little bit reputation-wise, but you know what we got? We got exactly what we wanted. We got a woman on the court who's going to be there for 35 years. We're probably going to overturn Roe. We're going to move the court in a conservative direction. We held the Senate. I mean, all in all, if I was an evangelical, I wouldn't feel so bad about what happened over the last four years. And really, like, someone's like, you're going to damage the brand of the Republican Party. Listen, it is what it is. 77% of white evangelicals vote for Trump. I mean, they are what they are now. And, you know, at, at some point, like, I, I'm always a big fan of just, just say what you are. You know, like, if this is who you are, don't, like, hedge. Just say, we like this. This is what we wanted. And it's clear, Trump actually gained in a lot of areas. Listen, Donald Trump energized rural America. I'll tell you why. My home county, Marion County, Illinois, 40,000 people. There are 15 seats on the county board. There are 15 Republicans on the county board now. There are zero Democrats on the county board in Marion County, Illinois. For the first time, as far as I can tell, in history, it's been that way. When in 2000, my first election in Marion County, Illinois, uh, Bush got 51, 48 for Gore. Okay, Trump won it by 35 points on Tuesday. I mean, the, the rural America is gone for the Republicans now, and it's never coming back for the Democrats ever in my life. I can't imagine a scenario where that does. And guess what? That's the Republican coalition now. Big cities, Democrats. Rural areas, Republicans. Suburbs, battleground. That's really what America looks like going forward. I think there's all sorts of interesting religion stories that intersect with that too, by the way, in terms of non-denominational evangelicals in the suburbs versus in the rural areas, because I think they're a different brand in a lot of ways. I remember talking to a minister in Tennessee. I get the most unique calls by white evangelicals. And they said, can we talk? I know it's coming. Because they said, well, we just, we don't think George Floyd should have died and things like that. But we can't agree with Black Lives Matter because of this, these, these reasons. And I'm like, well, I don't agree with all that, even though I'm a journalist. But, you know, and, but they want to get to know the Black community. And you have Blacks who want to get to know. And I think because of education, I think because of sports, that people, to me, want to come together. But there's a big fear. How much was this vote with the evangelicals? were very fearful and not understanding what the protest was about. Plus, those protests were hijacked, you know? Were you really looking at Black people? Are you looking at the anarchists? you looking at the Russians? No one really knows how that was used. And so I think there's a chance, maybe just a chance, that will we see this new effort to have the, quote, beloved community, which happened post-68 and civil rights after those riots, you know, where the doors open and people say, can we have dialogue? Well, to follow on that, Hamel, 70, 70 to 80 percent of, of white evangelicals went for Trump. Um, at, at Religion Unplugged, I mean, we were getting press releases and hearing from some groups trying to say, hey, we are evangelicals for Biden or, you know, maybe were those small flashes in the pan marketing efforts or is there, well, you know, is there any possibility for, I think, different Christian effort or behavior um, that's different than some of the, the, I guess, labels or characterizations we see in the data? I, I'm, I talked to a reporter from Canada yesterday, and he asked me, like, what should the Democratic Party do with voters of faith going forward? And I say, forget about white evangelicals. Just forget about them. It's over. I mean, when you have four elections in a row and they and you get the same share in all four elections in a row, no matter what you do, no matter how much money you spend, no matter how many you know, interest groups you put together and how much, you know, all this coalition building, it's still a 78 822 coalition. So stop all that. Like you, uh, to me, where your focus should be is it should be a couple groups. We talk about white Catholics, but I also think 
white Catholics are important, but I also think white mainline Protestants have been sort of untalked about yet. Um, they're a small number of Americans now. They're only 10% of Americans, and they were 30% of Americans in 1976. But I think they're also located in spots that matter a lot because they're like United Methodist Church is the largest mainline church in, a, in America. And I had a, a demographer tell me one time there's a United Methodist congregation in every single county in the United States. So they're all over. And they're a group that is very malleable. They're about 53% Republican, but they, they tend to not be, you know, they're not MAGA Trumps. They're um, sort of your old school, like Bob Dole Republicans from like 20 years ago. I think they're kind of group, and especially, by the way, they have high incomes and high education, which means they turn out a lot and they're older, which also means they turn out a lot. If you can peel off two, three, four percent of that group, right, that with that white Catholic coalition that you just peeled back is enough to keep winning in places like the Rust Belt. Paul, to your point, I think in Nevada, places like Nevada to me are like, wow, man, you've got to do better with Hispanics, too, if you're Democrats. You've got to find what what works for these. So I think this new this new thing amongst Hispanics is a lot of them have become evangelicals, right? Um, as they sort of assimilated to American culture. If you if you immigrate to America and you live in a place like Georgia, you want to become you, you don't want to be Catholic because there's not that many Catholics in Georgia. There's a lot of evangelicals in Georgia. So you see a lot of these storefront churches, you know, cropping up that are not attached to sort of bigger denominational structure. They're just, you know, they they, they rent a space for 300 bucks a month and they, you know, have worship on Sunday morning. That's the kind of group that they that the, the the Republican Party is is fighting for and the Democratic Party is fighting for too. But what's interesting about Hispanic evangelicals is they're actually more conservative on abortion and gay marriage than white evangelicals are, right? So I think that is really interesting. But on immigration, they're more moderate, okay? So I think they're really truly a group that's pulled in two directions in America today because their religious identity pulls them to the right, but their racial identity pulls them to the left. I think that's where the battle is going to be fought in the next 10 or 15 years in American religion is trying to peel off, trying to figure out, trying to make these people part of the core, like white evangelicals became part of the Republican core. What are Hispanic evangelicals going to be in 20 years? Are they going to be solidly blue, solidly red? Is it going to be regional? And by the way, that group is growing rapidly now. So you've got to start capturing them early before they get so big that they're locked into one side or the other. I would, if I was focusing on anything as a Democrat, that's where I would focus all my time and attention is figuring out what these groups want and how can we be appealing to these groups and forget about white evangelicals if you're a Democrat. And by the way, if you're a Republican too, because they're going to vote for you no matter what you do. So, you know, focus on the battleground. Don't focus on the fringes on either side. In the same way, Democrats should not be focusing on atheists. (laughs) Guess what? Atheists are going to vote for you. 80% of them are. Leave them be. Focus on the middle and places that you can win votes back. And, and that's, I think it's mainline Protestants. I think it's Catholics. I think it's Hispanic evangelicals and, and, um, and Catholics too. So maybe uh, we'll get to this round here of last questions from people. And my question is, it's Friday today. Maybe we'll have a winner by Monday. Maybe it stretches longer. But it is a crucial moment right now as to civility and trust in institutions. And what should pastors and churches be doing in this moment of uh, during accounting of an election, et cetera. I think that, I think, I mean, obviously what pastors should be doing right now is saying things like, let's count every legally cast ballot. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I think that's, that's what we have to do is reinforce our institutions. Uh, there's this great book by John Compton called The End of Empathy, Why White Protestants Stopped Loving Their Neighbors, which is, he's a political scientist, but he's also, it's almost like a political history book, but it has some stats in there too, which I love, obviously, where he basically makes this big, interesting argument that, what happened in America and really what's happening with polarization is that the mainline kind of disappeared and there was a void left in there. Um, that 
Donald Trump would not have been the nominee if the main line was still as strong as it was 30 years ago, because they would have risen up and kind of told the laity, that's not who we are. We're going to vote for Rubio. We're going to vote for Kasich. That's going to be our person. But when no one speaks for the church, politics takes the four. And I think the worst of our impulses takes over, right? I think that's a big story, by the way, in American Christianity is it used to be top down. I mean, the largest denominations in America were largely top down. The United Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Lutherans were all top down hierarchical denominations. And now think about what the biggest churches in America are. The fastest growing religious group in America today is non-denominational evangelical Protestants. And that's a bottom up movement that has nothing at the top. There's no one, you know, directing traffic at the, at the even the regional or the national level. So what you have is these little pastors who have fiefdoms all over America and hardly ever coordinate and talk about things. So you can't steer Christianity like the way it used to be steered, you know, back 30, 40 years ago. And so what's steering it now is the fact that Fox News is 24-7. I think that's what's steering American Christianity more than pastors are. I think pastors, unfortunately, have taken on this idea that I don't want to be political. I don't want to be controversial. I don't want to drive people away. But I think what they've done is they've really created a void in American life that people are filling somewhere else. I think there's ways to talk, and I talk about this in my book that's coming out in March. I think there's ways to talk about faith in, in ways that, that makes the Democrats look bad and the Republicans look bad at the same time, right? There are, there are theological principles that I believe in that really make me dislike the Democrats and really make me dislike the Republicans. I think that's what you have to do is say, let's get back to a Christian worldview. Let's interpret partisanship through a religious lens and not religion through a partisan lens, which is where we are right now. Unfortunately, pastors are in a terrible spot, and people who aren't pastors don't realize this, but most pastors can be fired at any time for any reason without any recourse, legally or otherwise. You'd be lucky if you got severance pay. So you are incentivized to be as bland and as boring and as vanilla as you possibly can be because you don't want to lose your job. So what you do is end up not talking about politics, and then Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingraham fill the, fill the void that you've been leaving because, honestly, you're a coward. Um, during, you know, during the George Floyd protests, um, I actually said the phrase Black Lives Matter from the pulpit, and my insides turned upside down when I said that because my congregation is a bunch of older white people in rural America. And I know they didn't love that, but I know they needed to hear that. They needed to hear that message from the pulpit that pastors really believe this stuff and that they should think about it, right? Not just discount it because Tucker Carlson discounts it, but think about it theologically. I think I'm in a good spot because they're not going to fire me. I'm not going anywhere. But I think pastors need to have a little bit of courage and realize that they're causing the worst possible outcome by not speaking out courageously about theological issues in a nonpartisan way, which you can, by the way. You know, I have a diverse congregation, and it's funny how last night, I mean, I have two churches, but my white brothers and sisters, I was in tears because I was just hearing it, hearing it. And I just started screaming and then, no, brother, this morning, brother, we love you. You know, we're not trying to tell you, but they want to talk. They are angry. They're hurt. They're feeling frustrated because one congregation is in Roanoke, Virginia. That's like Trump country, but they want the relationship. Our relationships are intact. But then their politics is based on, like you say, the foxes and stuff. And you have to be, number one, the minister versus some journalists, you know. And it's funny how you write. I mean, church right now is we're not as involved with people's lives on a daily basis. And so they get discipled by the television, by the Internet, by social groups. And again, it's, a, it's a, definitely a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> 
but a lot of groups, you know, and again, it's going to be really interesting where we go forward. Well, I want to thank everybody for being here, especially, you know, Ryan Burge and then and all the team members from Religion Unplugged. Thanks for the uh, comments and insights. And uh, thanks for, to the audience for listening. And uh, look for all these wonderful people's bylines at Religion Unplugged as well uh, to continue to understand what's going on here post-election. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freebie. Special thanks to Religion Unplugged managing editor Megan Clark. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is a part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag.